I tell you, what a, what a gift uh, music is to the body, isn't it? Thank you so much uh, to the musicians. I, I feel like they lead us well. They don't distract. They just help us in that. I so appreciate them. And uh, I've appreciated the time in the Psalms uh, while Pastor Curtis has been away. Uh, today's uh, message is called Calm Yourself. And uh, Psalm 130 is uh, a gem of a psalm. It's short. Uh, it's beautiful. It's sweet. And uh, to any of us who have ever felt that iron hand of anxiety grip your stomach, you've had the dark visage of the future bring fear into your soul, or you just have a general sense of disquiet, you know, perhaps you ask yourself, as, as many do, um, is this all there is to life? There must be more. And I would suggest that all of those things are emotions. Uh, they're not to be abo- avoided, but explored. Emotions are very much like engine lights. Uh, they let you know something is wrong under the hood. So this was a couple months ago. That's my dashboard right there. Um, a couple months ago, I was pretty pleased with myself because I had, you know, cars were running great, everything was up, and um, there were no lights, and that lasted for two days. And uh, then that little guy appeared. So I took it in and, and ran a diagnostic on it, and... Um, Turns out it's the catalytic converter. Now, of course, I've got a couple options now at this point, don't I? I could, um, I could of course, go buy the $160 part and uh, put it in. Actually, for me, I would get the part, try to put it in, lose my nerve, find out I don't have the tools, and then get someone else to do it. That's how it works for me. Um, or, having just passed an emissions test, I could just decide to let the baby run for, you know, two more years, because I spent the 80 bucks on it instead of the 40 So, hey, i got some time on this before I do this. I could tamper. I could cut the thing out and put on a test pipe, right? No one would know the difference until the admissions inspection, so that would come home to roost. Or, how about this idea? I could go ahead and remove 16 screws, get under the column, get behind the thing, find the, plug, the little bulb, and pull it. All my problems are gone, right? Well, of course not. Uh, we don't handle problems by, I, by treating symptoms, do we? The warning light here is implied in this sweet little psalm, Psalm 131, uh, the warning light that is being suggested here is a noisy soul or angst or agitation. So here we have King David, who is known as a man after God's own heart, not because he is perfect, but because he is humble before God. A man after his own heart commends to us a life which he has imperfectly modeled. I mean, David had his ups and downs. He had his high points, and then he had a few uh, very low points. So he models it imperfectly, yet he can fully recommend it. He can say, yes, this is a life worth having, a life worth emulating. So as we look at David's claims and his exhortation to us, I hope it will serve to you and to me as a diagnostic. So as we look at a quiet soul, we can kind of run a diagnostic and say, if this is what a a quiet soul looks like, a smooth running car, is that where I am? Or is my life throwing a warning light, an engine light at me? So there are three marks of a quiet soul, humility, maturity, and stability, and we find those in each of these verses. So first, humility in verse 1. He says, O Lord, okay, so he's addressing the Lord here, 
So we get to, to listen in onto this psalmist's conversation with God, which is a very privileged thing. He says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So David claims that he avoids two aspects of, of arrogance. We can kind of lump these as pride and presumption. Pride first. So a quiet soul avoids pride. He says in the very first part, my heart is not lifted up. So pride is inward. Pride, the heart in scripture, is your innermost being. So he's, this is an inward thing. And this is a view of life that is basically based upon an exalted view of myself. It means that I will exalt myself at any cost. I will take care of myself at any price. And uh, basically, it's the opposite of humility, which is taking a realistic view of myself before God. So pride, exalting myself, humility, a realistic view of myself before God. In other words, I either find my identity in what I view myself to be, or I find my identity in what God says I am to be. Pride is inward. David was a really great example of humility in his early life. And so here we had a man who was content with uh, feeding his father's sheep, and then later on, fighting another man's wars when he fought for King Saul. When he got worked up, it was over God's glory. You remember the account, perhaps, of Goliath, where David was really, really incensed that this giant was talking about his God, and no one would do anything about it. When we get worked up, when I get worked up, it's usually over something or someone not taking a high a view of myself as I think they ought to. You know, we got some uh, stock phrases um, attitudes and phrases of pride. Now, this is a train wreck up there. But, I mean, so basically the attitude that I have is I desire to be heard and understood more than I desire to hear you and understand you. I deserve to be unbothered by my children, by my coworkers, by my, the red tape that is around my workplace. I deserve to be unbothered. I deserve to be appreciated. It's not asking too much, right? Just a little appreciation every once in a while. To be acknowledged. I serve, well, someone needs to like kind of tip their hat to that, right? To call the shots, to feel good about myself. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with affirmation or being recognized, but, but these are things that I feel like I have a right to, and if I don't get them, I'm going to let somebody know about it. We might tell ourselves this, or even our children this, stick up for yourselves, don't let anyone push you around. You deserve credit where credit is due. No one recognizes me. I deserve peace in my own home. Sometimes you've got to treat yourself. That's not my problem. Is that too much to ask? I don't want much. All I'm saying is... And these are the phrases and the attitudes of a heart that has a high view of itself and is going to defend that position. And, and this comes naturally. You might have heard some of those phrases and been like, wait a second, what's wrong with that? Well, exactly. It's kind of like a fish, right, asking, you know, what's water? We swim in this. This is in our hearts. This is very, very natural to us. Uh, our education system encourages our children to think this way, to push themselves forward, to, to get all they can. Um, our economic system kind of pushes ourselves, uh, this, this class envy that if somebody has more than me, then I must somehow have been, been cheated. I need my share. Uh, our religion even, if you just go look at books, all the self-help books that are not focused on God, but are you know, focused on increasing myself and my worth and my view. 
Well, our fallen natures make it so that even when we're engaged in something commendable, generosity or kindness or whatever, we immediately take it and we twist it into pride. Boy, we are so messed up. Well, David says, I don't have that inward outlook. I, my heart is not lifted up. I don't have an exalted view of myself. David also claims that he's not haughty. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. Now, haughty eyes, or that could be just an outlook in life that defaults to looking down on people, is a natural corollary to pride because pride can't promote itself without demoting somebody else. That's just the way of it. From my exalted opinion of myself, I look down on people. I can tell if I'm inclined to haughtiness if I find myself being domineering, contemptuous of other people and their efforts, soft on my ears, hard on theirs, relentlessly turning people into competitors that need to be kept down. There's a counselor, his name is David Pallison, who uh, uh, wrote a well-known article on this particular psalm. You ought to look it up sometime. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but he gives this illustration that just was so perfect. He talked to a, a woman who was trying to describe what had happened to the relationships in her life. And she said that she had no peers, hardly. She had no friends in her life, and this is why. And this is the way she put it. She said, I have a very, very few people who are up on a pedestal where I look at them and I think they can do no wrong. Of course, they don't stay up there very long because I also have a pit where there are many, many people that I look down upon who have somehow wronged me or crossed me in some way. And there's only an elevator shaft that that connects the two. Nobody who ever gets into the pit is rehabilitated. Well, that is a life uh, without grace. And thankfully, there's an end to that story to where she was able to renew her mind and uh, her relationships changed. So David not avoids this, this exalted heart, an inward sense of how things are supposed to be, to defend myself and haughty eyes, the natural corollary, looking down upon people. Uh, but he also says in, in that verse, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous. Now, you may have noticed that the pride has to do with the heart, something inward. Haughtiness has to do some, with something that may very well appear on your face, haughty eyes. Uh, And here he says, I occupy myself, or I don't, with things too great. And so we might say occupying yourself is just what we do during the day, right? And and this is what I do with my hands. So we've got heart, eyes, and hands going on here. Occupying myself with things too great has to do with overreaching my God-given sphere with overambitious plans or unrealistic projects. The key here is the call of God. How do you avoid overreaching? The key is the call of God. Where has God called you? I think you would agree with me that if David the shepherd boy, and if you know David's uh, background, he was, he was the least of his brothers. He was out there keeping the sheep, not an exalted position. If David the shepherd boy woke up some, one day and said, you know what, I'm going to be king. He'd say, mm, too great for you, David. Now, what was the difference? Why was he not overreaching? Well, because... The prophet Samuel came and anointed him with the call of God and called him to be king. And at that point, it was no longer too great a thing. God called him. Spurgeon, the preacher, said it well. He said, fill your sphere, brother, and be content in it. Well, that really captured my my attention because it, it draws attention to the fact that you and I have a sphere. 
And we might look at our vocation. Our vocations are not just the job that we hold. Our vocations, each of us have many. You might think of them as hats, right? A person might be simultaneously a mother and a sibling and, um, and a daughter and an employer or employee or a civilian. These are all hats that we wear. These are vocations. And um, each of these are a sphere that we are supposed to live in, that we are called to. And each one of these hats or vocations or spheres have a certain amount of responsibilities that I have. And so not occupying myself with things too great is filling my sphere with everything I have until God calls me to have an advanced influence in another sphere. I think... um, A sphere is transcribed by God. And so we talked about vocations. It may be his provision. A lot of times you can tell your sphere because God has given you certain gifts and abilities. Maybe he's given you certain means, like actually, you know, the ability to to, to buy things or to finance things. Uh, Sometimes he gives the, just the general trajectory of your life. You know, you can, and I think we've all seen people overreach. Like even David did it when a number of people, uh, he numbered the people. He, he held a census, and this displeased God greatly because apparently he wanted to glory in it, to say, here's how big my army is, and uh, not trusting God. And God judged him very severely for that. Uh, and then on another occasion, he uh, overreached his fear and took another man's wife and, and indirectly had that man killed. Uh, we would look at that and say, well, that is overreaching. And overreach looks like a careening life path. All of a sudden, somebody just announces, say, on social media that they're leaving their spouse and starting a new career on the other coast. And you go, whoa, whoa, where did that come from? I mean, obviously, there's some sort of history and they have a story that they would tell about that. But overreaching looks like a drastic jump from the trajectory of your life before God calls you there. The difference between arrogant ambition and humble service is the call of God, which will always be in keeping with his word, will know we're called if it is in keeping with the word, it will be in keeping with the wise counsel of others, it will be in keeping with your personal gifting, and pursuing arrogant ambition without a call is always going to lead to sorrow. Proverbs 17.24 puts it this way, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Jumping spheres. Reaching over. Not present with you at any time. Always looking beyond you. Never satisfied. Pastor Eugene Peterson makes a very helpful distinction between unruly ambition and godly aspiration. Unruly ambition, he writes is to improve yourself by whatever means you're able, get ahead regardless of the price, and take care of me first. So you're always pushing, always reaching out, always trying to get beyond where you are right now. Godly aspiration, on the other hand, is a healthy dissatisfaction with the fallen state of things. Uh, and as healthy, set, well, yeah, until we are at last with the creator. So we are, we're never satisfied with created things because the creation is fallen. And so we always have our eye on what will be when God renews all things to himself. And, and so we can go back to the roles that we fill, right? I can, always be a, um, I can always be a more godly father. I, make, I be, may be wiser, more loving, more fair, more equitable, more excellent in what I do. 
A phrase you'll hear a lot around the staff table, the staff meeting, when we, we meet on Monday mornings, is make it better. How can we make it better? And so this definitely comes after services, after events, where we're always evaluating and asking, how can I make this better? And what we mean by that is, how can it be more excellent to the glory of God? How can it align closer to our mission? How can we do it so that people are more comfortable, that it accomplishes its purpose? That is a healthy satisfaction. And once again, that can be twisted to, uh, you know, to personal pride. But generally, that sort of attitude, how can we make this better for the glory of God? That is godly aspiration. So David says that he doesn't occupy himself with things too great. But then he adds, I'll not occupy myself with things too marvelous for me. And so we've already said there's the heart, the eyes of haughtiness. We've got the hands that occupy ourselves. And now we've got... Things that are too marvelous for me. This we might add the mind. So things too marvelous has to do with being presumptuous mentally. So if if occupying yourself with things too great is being presumptuous with your actions and what you do with your hands, uh, this is being presumptuous mentally, presuming to know the mind of God. Perhaps it's obsessing over mysteries, refusing to accept God's answer. That you can tell you're in this mode when it's like, why, why, why? And then somebody gives you a biblical answer and you're like, that doesn't make sense. Why, why, why? It's the heart of a skeptic. A heart that is not satisfied with any answer. This is obsessing over things that are outside your control. Well, now, if you look at this, if somebody's heart, eyes, hands, and mind are constantly reaching out in this unruly ambition, it's no wonder that they're exhausted. It's exhausting to have to keep yourself on that pedestal. It is exhausting to constantly put people down. It's exhausting to reach out for that which is not rightly yours. It's exhausting to question the mind of God and never, ever be able to take his answer that perhaps you may not understand. Now, the alternative to this and the first mark of a quiet soul is humility. And that's something that David claims. Now, humility might be one of those claims where you say, well, as soon as you claim it, you don't have it. Well, David claimed it. He said that I am humble before God. Next, in verse 2, he further affirms what he says in verse 1. So the verse says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Perhaps your version says, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Uh, What this is, this has the force of a Hebrew oath. So he's basically doubling down on this right here. He said, so I have humbled myself, and surely I have done it. Now, when he goes on, and he's going to expand on this a little bit more, uh, he lets us see kind of the process by which he battled pride. He says, I have calmed and quieted. And we could call this second mark maturity. Maturity. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. A quiet soul has made the shift here. They've made a shift from something to something. The shift is from consuming, and the shift is to contentment. Notice that it's a shift. A child that is weaned, no longer nursing, is is hardly the same child as the one that uh, was nursing a while back. Uh, it It is a shift. It couldn't be more different than the fussy infant of earlier years. Our default is to view God and other people as a source of supply for us. Our wants, our needs, our ambitions. We looked at this danger in verse 1. And anyone who's ever held a nursing infant who is hungry, 
you all of a sudden realize there's nothing I can do, no shushing or swaddling or, 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 you know, or jiggling or any emotions or anything that I can do for this infant right now until I hand him or her back uh, to his or her mother. So you realize that it's impossible to satisfy that baby. Without a shift, uh, this person is going to be, if, if your soul is like that, if you are ambitious and reaching out, you are going to be troublesome to people and you are going to be restless. It's an exhausting endeavor to promote yourself and demote others while presuming to operate outside my sphere, question everything. That just makes me restless and impossible to satisfy as a rooting infant being held by a stranger. And David says, I'm not like that. You know, when, when you live like this, where you are a consuming person, where you are not content, where you're consuming everybody, God and others are to fill my needs my sat- and satisfy my ambitions, uh, you can count the attrition in failed relationships. People are taken for granted. Why? Because I'm worth it. I have an elevated view of myself. Why wouldn't they do that for me? People are degraded because they're competitors. I look down upon them. They have failed. They have not helped me in any way. People are trampled and people are used because I'm trying to use them to accomplish things that are too great for me. And uh, if they're in the way, I push them aside or I use up what they have to offer and then I move on. The attrition happens with uh, your relationship with God too. And you may say to yourself, a God who does not aid my pursuits, if, if God is going to treat me that way, then he's no God to me at all. So this shift from this kind of consuming, we have to shift from consuming and viewing people and God in this way to something else. We have to shift to a life of contentment. So it's from consuming to contentment. A weaned child would be like a three to five year old. And, and something, you know, maybe, maybe early, but a child that is no longer seeing his mother as a source of supply. And one of my wife's greatest joys is when she has a child, a three-year-old, four-year-old child, who just like snuggles in and says, Mommy, would you read to me? Or they don't do anything. They just come and they just like plop beside her and snuggle in and start sucking their thumb. And this is, this is a weaned child. Now that child has forgotten the rather painful process that took place for them to be, come to that point. This is a point where if you've ever been through this or seen this going on, where that poor baby like is dying. I mean, this is the child's first great sorrow. She is being denied that which is vital to life and is most important to her. And, uh, but now this child who's snuggled next to mommy listening to a book um, has this view on life. Mommy will take care of it. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to eat today. She'll take care of it. I don't know what my schedule is, unless, you know, you've made a schedule board or something. They don't, they don't know where their meal is coming from. They don't know when snack with, is necessarily. They don't know what their schedule is, but they trust mommy. They are excited just to be next to her. In other words, we could say they are willing to be fed and led. The song that we're going to sing later on today says, Leave to thy God to order, in other words, to set things and provide. So that is contentment. Not consuming what God can give me, but contentment. I leave it to him to order my life and provide for me. The Bible also calls this waiting upon the Lord. The psalmist says, I relate to God in that way. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. So verse 1, humility. Verse 2, maturity. And just a couple of observations about this weaning process. Number one, it isn't smooth. 
It is the infant's first great trial in life, the first great sorrow. It seems to deprive one of something that is indispensable in life-giving. But you know what else? It assumes that there is a benevolent caregiver who knows what is necessary for the good of the child. In other words, it is time. And then finally, it's interesting to note that it is forgotten. That three-year-old child, that five-year-old child, is not thinking about that any longer. They got through it. And the joy of relationship takes the place of that more concrete joy of food. Through the years, I've had the experience uh, myself and also have heard people uh, tell me about how when they were first saved, when they were first redeemed, they prayed to God and God answered them in amazingly concrete ways. Sometimes I've heard stories like, I had to pay my school bill and my school bill was $1,032.46 and the next day, I got a check in the mail, and you know what it was for? I mean, you know, it was some fun, very, very close to that. See? And God does that kind of thing. But does he always do that kind of thing? You know, later on, as you grow, you might see that those really, really concrete boosts to your faith may taper off. And what are you left with? A relationship with God, where you have to say, God, I don't know exactly what you're doing here, but I trust you. What has happened? Well, don't be alarmed. I think you've probably gone through a weaning process. Don't let it throw you. A mature life is also another just indicator that you've moved from consuming to contentment. It might be reflected in your prayers. Um, I don't know. When I, when I grew up, somebody told me about this acronym for prayer uh, called ACTS or ACTS. In other words, there needs to be different elements to your prayer. Adoration, a time of just telling God about who he is. Confession talking to God about my flaws, my, my, my sins before him. Thanksgiving, where I thank him for, for who he is and what he has done for me. And then finally, supplication. I had a, had a, a teacher who uh, would put this forward where he says, how healthy is a relationship that is only based on supplication? So what if, what if you had a marriage that revolved around food and laundry? You came to your spouse and you said, hey, uh, honey, is the food ready? Thank you for giving me food. Hey, honey, are there any clean socks? Thank you for giving me clean socks. Is that a healthy relationship? <laughs> no, that's, that's far from it. So if our prayers are like that, it, in, it indicates consuming and not contentment. Another possible test of this, of whether I am a consumer or content, is whether I give life or whether I sap life from people. Do people interact with me feeling like they've been played? Oh no, here he comes again. He's going to ask something more for me. You know, he, he always wants it. There's no, there's no recognition. Thanks, praise. They're all, you know, you, you've had people that are just life drainers. Have you ever met somebody like that? Like you just leave them just sapped. They've taken from you and taken from you. And, ta- and, and children are like that, right? Right, that's, that's immature. Um, or you've also met people, I've, I've had it often, where I've gone to a hospital visit to encourage somebody, and this dear old saint has encouraged my heart. I come to give them scripture and pray with them, and I leave just like so encouraged. What is that? Maturity. That's what that is. That's maturity. And one other thing I want to point about this. Um, strategies are okay. 
If you are one who, as we pointed out, knows what anxiety is like, even the psychosomatic effects of it, where it takes over your life, where you have unexplained panic attacks, where the dark dread of angst or the future comes on you, if, if these are things that, that you grapple with, um, strategies are okay. Uh, many of you know that my son Titus has, has autism, and uh, Titus has um, really unexplained bouts of anxiety. And he will just come and say, I'm anxious. And, uh, and you can see him just like holding it. And so what I'll say is like, Titus, will you let Daddy help you? And, and he will say yes. And so we'll start employing certain strategies. And, and uh, that may be uh, you know, a back rub with essential oils. It might be occupational therapy things where you do joint compressions. I mean, there's all kinds of strategies that we have to do this. But while I'm doing that, I may be giving him a back rub, and I'll be talking to him and saying, buddy, did you know that God created you? Did you know that he made you good? Did you know that this anxiety that you're feeling, buddy, is not your fault? But do you know that something never changes? Is that God is good and he loves you. And someday, Titus, when you're with Jesus, you're not going to be anxious anymore. Thank you for letting Dad help you. And, and so you see strategies combined with truth. And so just understand that if you have to do strategies, you have to do ways of thinking, you have to go to counsel, you have to have medicine, it is so it can bring you back to that level plane so that you can put your hope in God. Because sometimes the noise is so loud, you can't do it. It quiets the static so you can spend some time putting your hope in God. David made claims of humility and maturity. Now, he made those to the Lord, he says in verse 1. But now in verse 3, he's going to talk to us as the congregation. He turns and he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He calls the congregation to follow his lead. See, this is not something new here. Hoping in the Lord looks like humility. Hoping in the Lord looks like maturity. He calls them to this, and we might call this stability. To ground their expectation in a well-grounded trust. In this last verse, we find the basis for his humility and maturity. They spring up in the soul of a person who has a relationship with God. Humility and maturity are not self-help, self-improvement goals. You only get them by having hope and a relationship with God. A quiet soul trusts a worthwhile object. A few aspects of this trust. Number one, trust is personal. He says, O Israel. So, as we said, he's been talking to God, and now he's talking to me and to you. You know, there's so much in a name. Israel was the name of of a man before it was the name of a nation. The name of the man was Jacob. It means deceiver, heel grabber, supplanter. It characterized him. And then he had an encounter with God where he wrestled with God and God gave him this new name, one who wrestles with God. You know, every one of us have a history, don't we? I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk right now, where you are a long-time believer, a new believer, somebody who's just exploring the faith. It does not matter. God is ready to have a personal engagement with you. And we can spend a lot of time in Scripture showing how uh, we, as the church, as the people of God, have inherited the spiritual uh, promises that God has given to Israel. But you can bank on the fact that when he turns to Israel, he is talking to the congregation. He is talking to me and to you. And he tells us something. 
hope in God. Trust is characterized not just by being personal, O Israel, it's characterized by eager anticipation in that word hope, when he says hope in God. Uh, This kind of hope is not a hope-so kind of hope. I, I, I have no grounds or basis for believing this. This is a different kind of hope. Uh, This is an expectant hope. This is an eager hope. This is a leaning forward kind of hope. This is full of trust and security and optimism and for the fulfillment of a promise. We get this sense in Psalm 130 that, um, that Wayne had read earlier where these two psalms are supposed to be paired together. And you'll even see this in some of the language. In Psalm 130, verse 7, you hear the exact same phrase. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And we see in Psalm 130 a psalmist that cries out to God with the expectation of being answered. A psalmist that says, God, if you marked iniquities, who would stand? So this is a person who has a sober view of themselves. They say, I wait upon the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And you notice that in this passage they say a weaned child, like a weaned child, twice. And this one, like a watchman, like a watchman. And, and what is it about watchmen? Do they ever doubt that the morning is going to come? No. They know the morning is going to come. Does that lessen their anticipation of it coming? No. They want it to come. It's a change of shift for them. And so in Psalm 130, it also calls them to hope in the Lord. And so eager anticipation is how this is characterized. The worth of one's hope is always in the object of one's hope. If my hope is in my pride and my ambition and my promoting myself, then my hope is not grounded. But in this case, the object of hope is, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And here he uses the covenant name of a promise-keeping God. And so trust has to be in a worthwhile object, and here it is in the Lord. In order to be humble, you have to replace the God of self-promotion with something much, much greater. That's how this works. And the greater one is God. Now, throughout Scripture, God reveals himself in a number of names, and each one tells you something about himself. But this particular name, Yahweh, is a name that is the big one. It was revealed to Moses at the burning bush where God says, I am that I am. And what that speaks of is a sure stability. He is a God that has sure existence. He has always been. He always will be. But then he began to make promises. And so God employs this name when he is making promises to his people. And so... The hope that we put ourselves in is in the covenant name of God. So it's beyond the scope of this message, but this name is also applied to Jesus Christ. There was a time where he said, I am, and they picked up stones to kill him because they knew the importance of that. There are times where he accepted worship. There are times where they said that they saw Jesus and they saw the Lord, and it connects to Old Testament passages. It's no mistake that we are called Christians or Christians, right? Because we make much of Jesus Christ. Our mission and our identity as a congregation is even wrapped up in this. Occasionally you'll hear us point out, or you'll see it in print, that we are a family that follows Jesus and helps other people follow Jesus. Why? Because through Jesus came redemption. 
Exodus 34 is just one of the most classic passages on the character of God that you will find in Scripture, where it says that he is merciful and gracious. He is patient, full of loving kindness, truthful, faithful, forgiving, just, and righteous. Hope in that God. And finally, it's not just personal, O Israel. It's not just expectant, hope. It's not based on just the most sure name in the world, the Lord. It's from this time forth and forevermore. It's an enduring state that we enter into. This time forth and forevermore, right? That about covers it. You know, David didn't have the benefit of the amount of revelation that you and I have. We have verses like 1 Peter 1.13 that says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your, and here's our word, hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is when he returns, bringing rewards and fellowship for those who believe in him and judgment for those who reject him. These are the marks of a quiet soul. This is the diagnostic. So when you look at that, you say, that reflects in my life. This is, this, is, this is how I live. Or is your life throwing up a warning light in a number of ways? You know, when, when Peter says, be sober-minded, a good way to be sober-minded is to get a sober view of yourself. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Based on this psalm, would you spend some time with it and, and ask yourself those questions? You know, am I humble before God? Am I mature or am I a consumer? Am I stable do I know my God? So am I humble? Am I full of, or am I full of self-promotion? Do I have a generally low view of other people? Or am I compassionate and generous in my outlook? Are my prayers marked by demand? Or do they indicate that I'm willing to be led and fed, ordered and provided for? Does my hope have a name? Is that my name that's in that blank? Is it someone else's name that's in that blank? Or is it the Lord? Is that name Jesus? When he's revealed in the last day, will it be for blessing or for judgment? And so calm yourself. When I am anxious, when I am full of angst and dread of the future, when I'm agitated, when I'm discontent, one of my first lines of question should be to examine whether it stems from my frustrated pride, my treating others and God as a commodity, and placing my hope in something other than Jesus. Then my life will be marked by that which is the mark and the heritage of every believer. We are called to this, brothers and sisters, humility, maturity, and stability, not an anxious life, but a blessed one. Would you pray with me? Father, I read this and my soul immediately responds to it saying that I want to be like that. And I won't get too far into my day before I realize that I'm not like that. My default is entirely other than this. So, Lord, this brings me back to the fact that I need your grace. I need your provision. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who know you, not a people who try to improve ourselves and do better on these things, work on these things, but somebody who comes to you for this and finds our hope and our stability 
in you and in knowing your name. Father, I know there may be some here that are in the midst of times of deep anxiety. Father, I pray that this would help just drive them to your arms. Lord, we do thank you for the many ways that grace appears in our lives, through the, the speech of other people, through, uh, through doctors, through, um, through medicines, through exercise, through uh, sunshine. Lord, so many graces that you have given to us. But Lord, I pray that always we would try to calm the static so we can learn your name better. Lord, if there's any here who this sounds foreign to them, I ask that this would be the day that they would put their hope in you, that they would turn to Jesus, they would find out what that means. Father, thank you for allowing us to worship together today. Thank you for the Psalms. Lord, thank you that you don't just speak to us in in commands, that you give to us uh, poems and narrative and many other ways that you speak to us. Lord, thank you for letting us have this precious little gem. I pray that it would uh, be in our minds this week. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.